0: Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. (laughs) Kate, we were so stupid. We were so dumb. We were like, oh, we're good luck charms. No, we are not. It's like the old saying, when people show you who they are, believe them. We were going back and forth on previous episodes of Off the Looking Glass saying... I don't know, we've seen some subpar play from the US women's national team, but it's gonna it's gonna get better. And it did get better. It did get better. <sighs> That's what's so frustrating,
2: Kate. They got knocked out of a game that was by far and away the best game they've played this entire tournament. And it Ugh. was in the most brutal way possible.
0: Yeah. And if she scores, Sweden wins, the US is out. Partag! There, can it go in? Waiting on a signal, you've got to be kidding. Sweden wins, and I mean, I have a lot of pain in my heart for Kelly O'Hara and Megan Rapino. When it comes to Sophia Smith sailing her PK, like she's gonna have so many more opportunities on the global stage, but. That is like Megan said, the stuff of nightmares that, like, you're. F- but if you stick around long enough, it's kind of like gambling, right? Like, if yeah, you keep. You might playing, end your career on
2: that. It
0: <laughs> <that Yeah. laughs> becomes more and more likely as the world catches up to us.
2: Oof. It's a good point. I mean, after the US lost to Sweden, England almost lost to Nigeria, also on PKs. And that would have at least made me feel like slightly better not because I'm rooting against them I'm very indifferent to who wins at this point mm-hmm. like honestly I kind of want Sweden to win yeah me too but it would have made me feel a little bit better just to know like this is a really hard tournament yeah. to win yeah that being said Kate <laughs> losing in the round of 16 is the worst that this team's ever done in this tournament yeah and there is. Almost no silver lining other than maybe it's a good wake up call to figure out
0: what needs to be figured out before the next cycle. It's probably the first World Cup since 2007 where you could say that no ground was gained for women's soccer in the United States. Like every other World Cup, you're like, they grew the game. It's bigger. There's more attention, more money. And this is possibly the first World Cup where you'd be like, maybe you'd just stayed static like I can't say that the game is bigger now than it was two weeks ago and some of that is the time difference what do you think it's so
2: hard to gauge that but I think what I've seen from all of the rest of the world in this tournament has been so exciting and there's been so much engagement that it feels like you know what if this wasn't the US Women's National Team year wasn't their tournament. That's okay, because it seems like the rest of the world has really put a lot into this. Like Australia yes. and New Zealand have been selling out the stadiums. There's so many fans there. The ratings for the first round were great in the US. Obviously they're going to not be as great now because there's not national rooting interest at play here for American fans, but I don't know. It's hard to say, but yeah, it was, it was not what we were hoping for.
0: It's not what we were hoping for. But in good news, because we can predict the future, Jess, we have an off the looking glass episode today that isn't reliant on the US Women's National Team continuing to be in (laughs) the biggest tournament in the world. We've put an episode together with just pure dumb luck on our part. We are gonna have a guest who is talking about the business, the global impact women's sports can have if things are done right, because she's done a ton of research on it. And then we have an amazing campfire from marathoner Kara Goucher. So we're sitting pretty over here at Off the Looking Glass, bringing the, um, what do they call that? The programming, the counter-programming? The shoulder programming? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, Kate, are you going to watch the rest of the World Cup? Are you going to stay up and try to watch the semifinals and the
0: finals? I'm going to watch any World Cup that happens after 6 a.m. My time. That's fair. Yeah. That's me giving a lot of effort setting a 6 a.m. alarm.
2: 6am is really early, okay, I'm thank with you, Jess. you, and
0: you know what, we're, we're all going to be okay.
2: And most importantly, we're not going to let total weirdos totally spin the narrative of this U.S. women's national team and turn it into something that it's not, because we are very proud of them, even though this was as disappointing of a tournament as I think it could have possibly been.
0: Yes, but like you said, the world caught up, and that's okay. You know, to be the best, you have to beat the best. So going forward, when we do win World Cups, it won't be like, well, of course we won. Title IX, it'll be like, damn right, we got the best team in the world in this globally competitive game. So there's our silver lining, Jess. The future is bright, and we will be even happier when we win future World Cups.
2: You got to be at rock bottom sometimes to make it to the top
0: of the mountain. Okay, let's leave it at that. Our guest today is a four-time Olympian and a gold medalist. She's a member of the US Hockey Hall of Fame. She is a Harvard NBA. She's the founder and CEO of the Sports Innovation Lab, and she is a leader in unlocking the business potential of women's sports. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Angela Ruggiero. I wonder for somebody who has spent decades thinking about women's sports. What are some of the things you've been thinking about lately since the fan project? Like what are some of the next thoughts on your horizon?
3: Well, I actually just read your article in The Times, by the way. It was very good. Oh, thank you. Um, so I would love to see we do a lot of data on the fan through the fan project. We've been looking at the growth of the women's sports community, how women's sports is acquiring and retaining. Fans, you know, twice the rate of the general sports fan, general men's market. We've looked at the fact that, hey, this market has been underinvested in, underserved. The experience itself is subpar relative to the men and back to the whole. It's not about if you can dunk or shoot. It's about the fan experience and the access and the consistency in the market. I love those kinds of studies, clearly, because what they're hopefully doing and communicating to the market is you just haven't put the time energy and attention into a product products very good and you know the the 10 million people that have watched basketball over the weekend you know a lot of people are raising their heads going whoa what's that i'm like "No, no, no 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 the market is there you just haven't seen it you haven't really invested so i'd love to have a little bit more of that quantitative look but also the qualitative of just let's peel back the onion a little more and help the industry understand why it hasn't performed at the same rate as men why it hasn't biases in the system or these inequalities in the system. And, you know, you're doing a great job of doing that. We're trying to do that by just saying, look, there's a tremendous amount of pent-up energy demand, and there's absolutely attention there if you give it the same platform. And again, I just go back to my playing days as as an athlete. When I was on the Olympic platform, because it was a massive platform, wow, we got a lot of visibility. We got a lot of uh, interest in our sport. Fans, you know, popped up, signed their their daughters, their sons up. Women's sports just needs the same platform at the end of the day. And so, yeah, the data for me is is more, will hopefully help us get there quicker. We're not trying to bend hearts. We're trying to mold minds and enable the business side of the house to wake up and recognize that there's enormous economic opportunity out there.
2: How do you set out to do a study like that? Like, what are you actually analyzing and looking at? How are you collecting that
3: data? So we said from the beginning, all of our data has to be objective. You know we're we're a market research company at the end of the day, a fan intelligence company. I very much pride myself and our company at Sports Innovation Lab on the fact that we sit in the middle of the market. We are very objective. And so the data that we've used through the fan project or any of the work we've done on the women's sports community, Fan data itself, we, we actually asked fans, hey, do you want to do good with all that data that maybe Facebook or whoever is has been utilizing to their own benefit? Like, let us actually look at it and do something good with it. So we got fans to, to hand over their Twitter history or their Facebook history, which is really interesting what you can find in there. And we you know wiped all the personal identifiable information and we aggregated it, anonymized it, looked at it. So that was one source. More recently, we looked at, we licensed a uh, hedge fund grade purchasing data. So again, not what fans, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, I love women's sports. Well, they don't spend money on it. So we said, okay, let's be clean. Like, Let's go look at 20 million U.S. consumers' credit and debit card histories over the period of five years. That was the basis of the growth of the Women's Sports Community Report, kind of Fan Project 2.0. And again, super objective. It's just where you're spending your money. And we analyzed it. One of the most interesting parts of that was that, hey, through that research, we saw that fans of women's sports actually reward, greatly reward the brands that sponsor women's sports. They're going to spend, you know, they're super engaged. They're actually super loyal. 2,700% increase in engagement for Visa following their announcement of the U.S. Women's National Team Equal Sponsorship. We saw over a 1,000% increase in loyalty to Budweiser, like you'd actually go buy more product. Again, after their NWSL announcement 2019, Nike fans, they're spending 2.5%, 2.5 times more on Nike after their NWSL. Well, time and time again, you're seeing purchasing data, not what I think I want to do or what I like. Like You're literally going, hell yeah, you've, you are investing in a brand that I care about. I'm going to go spend money on your product. and I don't think you see that on the men's side. That, again, that's the value of the data. You're like, well, the, the old metrics would say, we sponsor for scale and eyeballs I'm like okay that's one level of success but what if you could a lot of the companies at the end of the day especially the b2c companies are want to push product you're pushing more product on the women's side of the house so it's a deeper more loyal more engaged fan base again it's just a different way to look at where you're spending your sponsorship dollars so yeah to answer roundabout way of answering your questions everything we publish is about something that's bulletproof because the last thing i want is data that comes back and isn't bulletproof. Our methodology is not bulletproof because again, we want to be trusted and we want those that are going to invest in women's sports to not have another argument. We want them to know like, no, there's, there's a really rich deep market opportunity here.
0: So if we go back, right, you mentioned your playing days and four time Olympian I'm not going to ask the question of like, what was the moment when you realized you needed to study this stuff or care about this stuff? But can you share with us whatever the cumulative effect was for you where coming out of Harvard MBA, you, at least in the back of your mind, were thinking, this is a space where I know I might be able to bring something different than what we've seen before.
3: So, yeah, 16 years on the national team, four Olympics. I use data to make myself a better athlete. We keep talking about this quantified athlete, this money ball effect. So that was my mindset. Like, oh, okay. Like I can play longer, play smarter by using data. Went back to business school, studied. I remember my favorite class, Clay Christensen, Disruptive Innovation Theory, which is again, broadly applied. I looked at the sports industry. And at the time I was on the board of the International Olympic Committee. I spent eight years on the IOC. I was elected as an athlete representative. And I'm sitting on... These executive boards, I was the chief strategy officer of the LA Olympic bid. We're trying to paint what the future of sports will look like, hiring basically consultants that didn't know anything about sport, but were very smart. I'm going, wow, there's like massive change. There's massive disruption happening in sports at this moment. And the people that are sitting around the table have no idea what's going on. Myself included, I'm saying, God, I wish there was a sports innovation lab, a group that was objective, could help me understand technology trends, innovation trends. Bring more data to the equation, not just interviews and interview the people I know for that matter. I saw an opportunity to market to help sports holistically get better. And our mission is to empower the industry to be a better version of itself. And so the moment I really flipped the switch on women's sports, we're probably three years into the company. I'm like, wow, it's great. We're doing work for the NFL and the NHL and FIFA and these Coca-Cola, these brands. Wow, this is great. I love that our business is taking off. But then I'm like, I'm part of the problem. I'm helping, which is great, all the biggest brands, biggest media partners, biggest properties innovate and change and be a better version of themselves. And yet we weren't servicing a lot of the women's market. And I'm like, oh my God, I love what I'm doing. I'm helping the sports industry, but I'm actually furthering that wealth gap. And so I said, what if we can use our methodologies and actually show the market for women's sports? Because if there's more of a market, there's going to be more investment, there's going to be more interest. And I would love for our company to do more in the women's sports space to lift it. This was like three and a half years ago. And again, the fan project, I think, was one of the first big reports to come out and say, hey, wake up, you're doing it wrong. You're lifting and shifting the men's model. And let's do it better.
2: This is a vague question, so you can answer as vaguely or specifically as you want, but what are things that women's sports does really well in terms of all these things that you mentioned versus what are things that they're still behind on?
3: So out of necessity, it's funny, women's sports has had to be extremely nimble and agile. I liken it. You're ju- it's just a startup. It's like venture. It's like high risk, high reward. The fans themselves are more digitally savvy out of necessity, because you got to go down that wormhole to figure out what the athletes are and find
2: find the game on Twitch live stream or whatever. Yeah.
3: Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing about that behavior now, like, oh, my God, you get this like future consumer that's like behaving differently, which we're trying to get the rest of the industry to like understand, okay, there's linear and they're doing it slowly. But women's sports is ahead of the game in terms of, as I mentioned before, the fans are more brand loyal, They're more technologically savvy. There's a lot of adaptation. They do a lot with little, I guess. So again, women's sports holistically is scrappier, which makes it potentially more innovative. Now that's where I think you need more capital to come in and be like, hey, you don't have to do things the way that the men do. You shouldn't do things the way the men do because the men's model is actually breaking. That's why I have a company. So I think women's sports has an opportunity to leapfrog the men right now because you've got this loyal fan base, And a newer fan base that doesn't care about gender, they just want good entertainment. They're like, women's, men's, great. If you invest in the right way, if you build a platform, there's incredible upside, I think, for women's sports right now. We're moving away from a B2B business where you outsource your rights and your data and everything else to like, no, everyone's bringing it in-house and trying to go direct to consumer and have more authority with their fan. So there's a big shift in the market. So I think women's sports is like perfectly primed because of cultural changes, you know, there's more of an interest in general. Again, that's like a macro trend because the technology, again, a macro trend that came in. I couldn't talk to my fans. I had to go through my agent. I had to like go through a, a writer Now I can just tweet and talk to whoever you like. Athletes have more power. NIL showing that women's sports are authentic. Women are more authentic when they go, they're more like naturally engaging to the consumer. So there's this like enormous point in time, I believe right now. And I wish it was 12 years ago when I retired, I retired 2011, it wasn't then, it's now. What they do poorly is they have no money, right? We're decades behind where the men started, that's okay, but what I would like to see is, can we professionalize women's sports, bring more capital in? So all the things I would say they don't do well, to me, are more of of a product of the biases in the system, the lack of capital being investment. But if I'm, again, a savvy investor, you know, you'd look at that, again, through the lens of like venture, like go invest, like go in the red for a few years. The XFL loses $100 million and they get a new ownership group like the next day. So there's, again, there's this opportunity and point in time where I I keep saying you've got a very loyal consumer base that's spending money that's going to do things differently. They want more access and behind the scenes content. So don't build it exactly like the men.
0: Yeah, that's something we've been talking a lot about this season on Off the Looking Glass is expanding our imagination to imagine a different future for women's sports than we currently see existing on the men's side. And I'm finding myself at a loss. I mean, to how to articulate or even envision what the future can be, because the only metrics I have are salaries, franchise valuations, TV rights, deals, ticket costs, ticket costs, you know, and you're kind of alluding to like, a vision of the future they're like, I don't know, is it success if a women's Final Four ticket 20 years from now is $1,000 or whatever inflation would be? Mm. Again, this is this question of what is success for women's sports? Because one of the core things we have repeatedly said is, like, when women have power or they have investment, they're going to shape something different than if men have power or they have money. And I think the sports world is this perfect landscape to see how that might play out. And yet at the very, very top of the hierarchy is still like male venture capitalists or traditional businesses run by like a predominantly male board. So it's like, this is again, sort of like an open landscape question, but how can women's sports build a future that has the pillars that society deems, oh, that's success, but like it looks different and it, the experience for the athletes and the fans feels different.
3: No, it's a great question. It's like, what do you want to build? Do you want to keep up and catch up? Or do you want to build something new? I would say build something new because men's sports is breaking. So I would say women's sports to me, if it views itself, I want that ticket to be a thousand dollars. I want, I want a big market because when there's a big market, players get paid more. There's a big market. You have more touch points with the fan. When there's a big market, more young boys and girls sign up to play sports. You have a platform of influence. You know, to me, sports, when you have that ultimate platform and I've had it coming home from a gold medal, I'm like, whoa, geez, everyone will listen to me. Everyone like thinks I'm a role model. Everyone's like influenced by what I'm doing. This is crazy. I'm no different, but now I am because I have a gold medal. I think women's athletes, women's sports takes that role more seriously. And I don't know if that's like some intrinsic thing, but I think if you have more successful women's products, women's businesses, they're going to use that platform of success to have a greater positive impact on society. That's just my bias.
0: Yeah. I
3: think it's part of your DNA. Look at the WMBA and what they're doing with, whether it's Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ. They're like, hey, we're inclusive for all. We want to make this product about everyone. So I always think about that in terms of pro. Like If your professional league is successful, men's, women's, like that does have a positive effect on the amount of girls and boys playing at the grassroots level. So I don't think it's like, you're a sports product. I think you're a cultural product. I think ten years, every sports product is an entertainment platform, cultural product. Sport reflects society, and I'd hope men's, women's sports, like we're not building for what we're doing today. Yes, you want to you want to pack the stadium and you want to sell tickets and have great broadcast rights, but what else are you going to do with that? What else? You know, what are the, the revenue streams and what other impact you want to have outside of being a very successful business? To me, that's the, that's part of it. It's like I want great business for women's sports it means everyone gets paid, including the players. But I also want to know, I like the byproduct of having a successful business. It's not a zero-sum game, in my opinion. It's, it's one plus one equals three. It's why I'm in business, honestly. I did a lot in the nonprofit space. I'm like, huh, if you build a really big business, impact you can have is greater. And that is the future, I think, I would love people to explore and think about. like, What could you do if you had that kind of platform?
0: question or pushback that I've always get and maybe you have an answer in the data and if not maybe you have like a general answer but there's always this pushback of like men shouldn't care about women's sports which is odd because it can often be a predominantly male audience because women aren't caring about women's sports right like as if women should prove that women's sports are something interesting and valuable, and then maybe men slash the, the powers that be should care. And I usually say, well, this is a cultural product, as you mentioned, and women want to be involved in the cultural conversation and a part of sports in the way that they're culturally valuable, which means being where the community is or being where the conversation is. Like women are no different than men. Like Are we supposed to go stand in the corner and like search out Some game on our phone because it's not on and, you know, Buffalo barbecue wings or whatever that place is. Sorry, maybe they want to be a sponsor and I just messed that up. But um. (laughs) it's okay.
2: You got the name wrong, so I don't think they'll be turned off. Okay, okay. OK. They won't know that we're talking
0: about. It's a metaverse company, the Buffalo barbecue wings. (laughs) Um, Exactly. And so I'm like, look, it's a cultural thing. Like women want to be involved in a conversation the same as men do. And if there's no conversation happening, then you're charging them to go not be a part of it. So, I, but I didn't know if you had any data or if you had any other thoughts about kind of how to answer that question.
3: Yeah, our data says fans of women's sports are roughly split, men in, between men and women, slight majority on the women's side. Uh, to me, it goes back to this the early part of this conversation. If the product sucks because you haven't invested in it, you can't find it. Again, put the athletes aside. The, think about the business product. I can't get a hot dog. I can't find the game. Geez, you're just giving me cheap beer, but I'd rather have like Prosecco. Like if the product sucks, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, you don't go. And I remember when I realized that I'm like, this isn't about the athletes. This is about how hard it is to be a consumer, how hard it is to be a fan. And you're, you're to your point of like, you're, you're asking fans to put aside the experience they get on the men's side, which is like amazing. And it's the water cooler talk on Monday morning and it's relevant and. You don't even know the rules. You don't even care, but you're like part of the community and that experience and the fireworks. I think if women's sports invests in the same way and builds leagues and teams that are fit for purpose, that are built for this consumer, this this new age fan, everyone will show up. There's a reason women don't follow women's sports. There's also a reason why men don't follow women's sports. You haven't invested. You haven't put the same experience that all sports fans have come to expect they're let down and again if they're let down they won't come back they might go once but they may not buy season they're not going buy season tickets so it's to me it's about big again it comes back to are we investing are we being creative with these and not expecting to sell just to moms with their daughters that is absolutely not the market in my opinion you have to build something that's built for the general audience
0: yeah i mean we could talk to you about this stuff for probably hours but we have obviously more pressing questions one being Uh, We interviewed Hillary Knight um, a few weeks back, and she mentioned that when the carpet goes down for the National Anthem singer, that becomes a hazard for hockey players. Um, (laughs) So have you ever fallen over that?
3: (laughs) Oh, my God. We had the best story. We had uh, in 2002, they had smoke. We're in Salt Lake City. No one could see the carpet. And we're coming out right where the Zamboni comes out. And it was, I remember, Sarah DaCosta was our goalie, number one. Tara Monsi was number two. Courtney Kennedy is number three and I'm number four. And it's just this like log jam of people. Um, the other thing that's a hazard that no one will ever admit, but it's happened to pretty much every athlete or hockey player is you forget to take your skate guards off. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's gotta be embarrassing. And if you want to get
3: really mean again, just going on uh, fun stuff here. Uh, my teammates once put clear hockey tape on the blade. <laughs> mm. And I was about to go on the ice, and I usually like to jump on the ice without my helmet, just to, like, take a couple laps, and then I put my helmet on. And they, they basically stopped me. They're like, you're yeah. going to hurt yourself. Oh, yeah.
0: okay, so they had they had a heart. They didn't want you to hit your head on the ice. So They didn't want me to
3: get severely injured, yes. but they wanted me to make a fool of myself. So, that you know, that's a good friend, right?
2: Yeah, that's a good line. <laughs> Is skating like riding a bike? Like, can you go out there after not skating for a few weeks and just be just as good as you were 10 years
3: ago? yeah the mechanics are the same but you're you know you're like heaving over like gasping for air or you're (laughs) like you're the lactic acid builds up much quicker in your quads and you have to stop um so yeah it's uh it's the same i still have joy but i can't perform the way (laughs) so leave it that way (laughs) but yeah you don't like forget to skate it's it's actually it's like it was my home for 30 years
0: it's like walking for you
3: yeah totally totally
0: (laughs) does hockey have warm-up tapes Warm-up mixes? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, we had
3: mixtapes back in the day.
0: Yeah. what was? (laughs) Is there a song you remember as always being, like, your go-to warm-up tape song?
3: Personally, really loved Lose Yourself by Eminem. Or Sandstorm
0: by (laughs) Da Rude. Techno hit
3: back in the day. That was a good one. Got me going. I always liked a very heavy beat. Upbeat. I, a lot of my teammates like country. I was always like, "That's too slow for me. I need something that's going to like amp me up and get my adrenaline flowing."
0: Okay, I know we got to get you out of here. So, last one: Mighty Ducks thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Open ended. That one coming. Um, <laughs>
3: well, I grew up in LA, and actually, I was going to be one of the. um They did like a. You know, they needed some local kids that actually knew how to play hockey, and there was there was like five of us in the whole state at the time. Uh, <laughs> So I was almost one of the backup kids for the Ducks, because they filmed they filmed some of it in Minnesota, but some of it in LA. So I knew a bunch of the backup kids, like the stunt doubles. So I was a fan of of the Ducks, because it made the hockey kind of cool. Like my friends at school that didn't know what hockey looked like, or like no one in my school played hockey, but they watched the Ducks, so we had something to talk about. Um, so I'm a fan, you know, it's, it's a little cheesy if you're a real hockey player, you're like, yeah, there's no such thing as a knuckle puck. You never heard of my knuckle puck? But you know, yeah, we're breaking fun. into the masses. You know, we're getting some access out here, so yeah. I, I'm a big fan.
0: Were you disappointed you didn't make it as the backup in the movie? Or
3: oh yeah, I really wanted. Well, I had to go out. To, I would have had to move to Minnesota for the summer. My parents were like, "Yeah, this not happening." Uh, <laughs> but that would have been cool. I, there were a lot of tryouts. I think there was a tryout for like a Wayne Gretzky Coca Cola commercial. You know, it's L A. So they they did a lot of you know the hockey. And there was like four of us, like I said, in the whole state. So um,
0: <laughs> you were always a, you. You gave him a nod every time you saw him at a commercial. There was a four kids. Yeah, and yeah. they all just gave
3: each other. Well, it's a, it's a thing in the, you know, hockey, and especially in the L.A. community, because um, I skated there before the 2010 Olympics, like Jerry Bruckheimer and Google getting junior. There's like a group of um, celebrities. And, I you know, I would go out with them every once in a while. And Justin Bieber plays hockey. I got to play with him at the 2017. NHL All-Star Weekend. He was on the ice, um, ice skated and I'm I'm like, that's pretty fun. You know, yeah. he's Canadian. He's plays a little hockey. Yeah, are no, not? Hockey's not as widespread as basketball or whatever. People that a lot more celebrities play. You Know those kinds of sports, Ho- so hockey's like if you, if you play, you're kind of like, all right, yeah, yeah you get the nod, like, all right? right. You
2: you can't do a celebrity like softball game for hockey because celebrities would hurt themselves if they didn't
0: grow up playing it, right? Oh, yeah, you, I mean, picking up a pair of skates, yeah, you just, you and gender- you don't want to
3: embarrass yourself, yeah.
0: All right, we know where we are a minute past our time, and you have, um. Not more important things to do, just different things to do with your day now. Um, But Angela, thank you for joining us.
3: Yeah, hey, keep up what you're doing. Pleasure to be on today, thank you.
4: So I had just run my first marathon, the New York City Marathon, and I had gotten third and I had run the American Course Record there and like some really good American women had run in New York. And it just seemed like, ooh, this was an event. I was actually thinking about taking a break from running at that point and trying to have a baby. But as soon as I finished New York, I was like, no, 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 I got to figure this event out. Like I just loved it so much. And so... My coach at the time suggested Boston, and the more I learned about it, the more obsessed I became about it. It was just so iconic. It has all of the history. And then someone gave me a book about the Boston Marathon, and then I was like hook, line, sinker. Like, I have to be written into the history pages. Like, I have to be a part of this. And so it was really, I got sucked into the Boston Marathon Vortex, which I think if you talk to a lot of elite marathoners, they do. If you're an elite athlete, you sign a contract with the major marathon. And Boston notoriously had not as much money as like a New York or a London, but it had the prestige of being like the granddaddy of the marathons. But so I signed a contract and basically it was, my parents' fee I think was $85,000 And then there was bonus structure if you did well. But then, of course, if you dropped out, then you might get reduced by 20% or 30%. The hard part is you don't know what anyone else is getting. So for instance, in that first Boston, I found out that an American male was gonna get paid $5,000 more than me. And I was told this in a way of like, oh, the only person getting paid more than you is so-and-so. And And that didn't land the way they thought it was gonna land. I was like, wait, what? Then no, I'm not gonna do that. And they actually did come back and give me $5,000 more. The goal in Boston was just to win. I didn't care about the time at all. Like times will come and go, but being Boston Marathon champions forever. And so I was given a strategy by my coach, which was you do not take the lead until you turn onto Boylston Street. And that's with 600 meters to go. It's like a lap and a half on the track to go. And so in hindsight and reading interviews, the other women were expecting me to go. And so everyone just kept running in this really slow formation. I do remember we crossed the halfway and it was so slow that I thought about what Paula Radcliffe, the best marathoner in the world, I thought about what she must be thinking watching this happen. I was like, she must be like, what are these women doing? They need me out there to pull this race along. There were so many women that I was getting tripped up and I felt like I was chopping my stride. And finally, like at the bottom of Heartbreak Hill, like I just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, I can't do this. I feel uncomfortable. I just have to go. And so I went against my coach's wishes and I just opened up my stride and took the lead. And it went from like 12 women to eight women to four women down to three women, like very quickly. And I have hardly any racing regrets in my career because you can't go back and do it anyway. But I do remember there was a media guy on the motorcycle taking pictures and he said, Kara, be careful. You're running five minute pace. And I, I slowed down and I will regret that for the rest of my life because The truth of the matter was that I could do that. I could run a 10K at five minute pace because we had been running so slow. Like we all were pretty fresh at that point. I've never watched any of the footage, but my husband was like, you were starting to pull away and all of a sudden you slammed on the brakes, you know, and I I think that if I had just run free and opened up, perhaps I would have been able to run away with it. But instead, I kind of broke the wind. I slowed down and broke the wind for these two women. And then when we turned on Boylston, they went by me and, and they beat me. And I regret that, you know, instead of like trusting my gut and saying this, like my gut was saying, this is it, you take it now. And it just just enough thought of doubt in my head of like, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. And Alberto said to wait and yeah. So I slowed down and became just a three women race. And then I was the one that got left behind. I think it's important to remember when you're out there that even though you have all these people that helped you get ready and you can make a rough plan, If you don't have intuition, you're not going to ever be as good as you could be. You know, in Osaka, Japan, when I won a medal at the World Championships, zero people thought I could do that except for my husband. And I'm out there like, yeah, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to see if I can keep going. And then I'm calculating in my head. What does my gut say? My gut says with a half lap to go kick into the medals. And I did that. You know, yes, my coach got me ready for it. My team kept me healthy for it. But I was the one that had to go out there and do it. And so I think it's important for athletes to remember, sure, you are a huge part of a team and your success is reflective of that. But if you don't know when it's your time to go or your time to make your move, like you're never gonna race your best. You have to be able to feel yourself and know like, yep, this is the time. I think about some of the biggest races I ever did. It was when I was all alone. And I couldn't hear my coaches. Like when I opened up, I felt amazing. And instead of trusting that, maybe I still would have gotten outkicked, but I would be able to think back and go, well, I did everything I could do. I look back and go, oh, I should, I did, I ran that way for about a mile and then I slammed on the brakes and I wish I would have just opened it up. And it haunts me. It still haunts me. I hate it. I hate thinking about it so much. In a really weird way, having Des Linden win healed me in a way because it was this drought that had gone on for so long and was like okay it's finally over it's over you know Des got it done and American finally won and now my issue she's helping me with my issues of like I was supposed to be the one I was supposed to end this drought. like it's done and I actually went this year and I had so much fun and you know I think it's always going to burn a little I've never watched any footage But as I get older, I do appreciate more that I did my best in that moment. And even though I slammed on the brakes and that wasn't the right thing to do, I still ran hard the rest of the way. And I ran as hard as I could down Boylston. And I have to be good with that because I didn't give up. I just didn't have it in that moment.
0: That was a little campfire, crackling fire story from Olympian and marathoner Kara Goucher. And just, I love that story. And I first read it in Kara's book, The Longest Race, which came out earlier this year. And then I asked her to retell it for our Off the Looking Glass audience because it was this moment during this pivotal race in her career where even though she's this high level athlete, she actually gets influenced and listens to a bystander at her race calling out, telling her she's going too fast, and it gets in her head. And I like, I think we have this idea that athletes are just impenetrable and that like the aura they create around themselves like, can't be pierced by mm-hmm. people in the audience or crowds. And here Kara is telling this story about this moment when she actually slowed down during the Boston Marathon because somebody got into her head. And I think it like makes even like Olympic athletes feel like they're real people too. And Kara Goucher, you know, she's a friend of the pod, Jess. So
2: she is a friend of the pod. And I mean, Kate, what a fitting correlation to something else that happened this weekend. That was very exciting, which was Simone Biles returning after a two year hiatus and winning the U S classic
0: in gymnastics. So What is the takeaway here? Don't listen to the haters. (laughs) Don't listen to the haters. And sometimes breaks are necessary. You don't have to be nonstop all the time, as Simone Biles' epic return to what do we call it? Not the field, not the court. The The gym. The the, the gym, (laughs) the apparatus. Yeah, um, I like that. The beam, but also the floor. (laughs) And the vault. (laughs) That's right. So, and also this off the looking glass is, it's back to our roots. We've got an eclectic collection of topics and stories for you today. Do you want to tell the people who helped make this episode? Kate, you help produce off the looking glass and you co-host
2: it with me and anya alvarez is also our producer so shout out to anya
0: big thank you to carl scott our executive producer and joel shupak who sound designs off the looking glass and thank you to kara goucher her book is the longest race as well as angela ruggiero for joining the pod